The following podcast is brought to you by the Bridge Bible Church in Somerset, Wisconsin. For more information, please visit our website at thebridgewire.com. Well, you know where this is going. Please open your Bibles to James chapter 1. It's on page 1011, and I'm going to ask that every set of eyes in this room grabs a concrete copy of the Bible if you don't have a Bible. I'm not legalistic, so I will settle for your phones if you're the phone generation. But the scrita, right, that's actually the the name of the, 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 the thin paper that's used in our modern Bibles. Like, there's something just cool about the scrita, man. There's something cool about having the book in front of you in our sort of AI age just to like make some notes and jot some things down. So would love for you to do that. Um, also, I'd love for someone to put these two things up on the stage so that actually I can utilize them in a minute. So let's, let's get these right next to me up on the stage. That'd be awesome. Um, yeah, yeah, both of those up here. So... Um, This is, by a landslide, the best Father's Day gift that I could imagine is to be here, having been one of the spiritual fathers of this local church, to see some of the OGs around the room. Uh, And uh, yes, so good to see all of you, uh, to see some network pastors. And uh, God's done some amazing things uh, in our lives and shifted things and moved things. But we are going to talk today uh, about something that I believe for um, you know, I, I don't know that I've been more confident about just a text for a time, and I never know why that is, right? You never know why this text for this time, but I'm super excited to dive into the book of James with you. And I want to give you a little bit of background, and I promise to weave some of my story in uh, to the message later so that you're like, what have you been up to? We'll get there. But you all knew how this was going to go down. You knew we were going to open the Bible. You knew we were going to dive in and go verse by verse and see what God has for us today. So, The letter of James is written by the half-brother of Jesus, who shows himself to be an excellent crisis leader. He led the church in Jerusalem through crisis um, and significant challenge. Uh, This letter was addressed to the Christians that were scattered because of persecution that came to that church. And what James does really well, even in this 108-verse letter, he gives 54 commands. And so good crisis leaders give clarity where there is confusion. And good crisis leaders also give challenge where there is compromise and the potential for compromise. And this letter of James has as its staple enabling to see, enabling us to see what robust, genuine, authentic faith in Jesus looks like played out. It allows us to sift the authentic from the inauthentic, the real from the fake. Did chat GPT write your homework or did you? Is it your Memoji on that Zoom that actually looks like you with all the AI that's coming out, or is it you? Is it real, or is it Memorex for the 1980s crowd? (laughs) But what I'm going to tell you is that in James chapter 1, what we learn about is that our full life development in Jesus requires trials. And I'm here to talk to you about a trial that I've been going through and about a trial that you've been going through, even though you may not recognize that you're in it. It's a test that you may not know that you've been taking. And I've been wrestling with this 
probably heavily for the last 10 years since I've been gone. My Facebook memory popped up like just a few days ago to the day I moved uh, 10 years ago, and then Bethany and the kids followed shortly after. And I want us to, 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 to just experience the gravity of this passage. I want God to just really this morning let you focus in on really where are you at in this test, okay? So what I'm going to do is I'm going to ask you to um, stand for the reading of God's Word, just to stretch it out a little bit, shake it up. We're, we're, we're going to be up and down. Um, this will be the last time I ask you to do that. But just in honor of God's Word, right? Like this is a special book. This is not just any book. It's the God-breathed Word of God, every word in the original manuscript, perfect, exactly what God intended it to be. And so I want us to read this together. Verse 9 says this, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, right? So you have nothing, that's your trial right now, that's your test. And James says to the lowly brother to boast in your exaltation. And while I haven't been poor and neither has anyone in this room been as poor as these early Christians were, most of you have probably felt like you've been at times maybe less, more or less without what you felt like you wanted. Maybe even just a poverty mindset, right? I mean, I'm straight out of the Somerset Meadows. I know, I know what that's like. I, I, um, Bethany and my first home together was a darling of like probably a 1978 trailer, single wide. It came with its own pet possum. I kid you not, because I broke my grill throwing a rock at the possum. But, you know, we just decided to keep him around. I named him Squiggles. But... You know, you, you, you kind of can hear and feel at times in your life like you have nothing, right? That, that's not us economically. We're going to talk about this today. But the reality is that person is to boast in his exaltation or her exaltation because you feel like or you have nothing, but the truth is that you lack nothing. So he goes on to say this. He wants the lowly to boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. So shout out to all the entrepreneurs, the business leaders, the teachers who've saved well over the years, everybody that has bread in the bank and you're the rich. Shout out to you because God wants you to rejoice in your humiliation. It's the same word for, for lowly in this passage, right? Let the lowly brother. So that means to be without, to be deprived of some things. He wants you to boast that you're also in this place of humiliation. And we'll, we'll unpack this together right? But this is your test. If you are of the rich, which 99% of us in this room could actually resonate with that at, the, at, at a high level, right? If you're in that category, that is your test. And, and it's a brutal one. And we're going to talk about it today. So why should we do that? Why should we boast in our humiliation? Because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away for the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls, its beauty perishes, and so also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. That's hard. In the midst of just doing your stuff, you're going to fade away. But blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. Why? For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. That's the word of the Lord. Please have a seat this morning. We're going to explore this passage together. We're going to dive into it. We're going to focus on getting all the pulp out of the, the, these particular verses 
in the Bible book of James together. So James, in verse 2, said we're going to experience like trials of various kinds that we're going to have to endure. And one of those particular trials is our economic uh, estate, if you will, our economic uh, reality, all of our stuff, our bread, whether we're poor or whether we have actually abundance. And again, I believe that, that all of us in this room are in the midst of this test one way or another. And it's a test that we can fail to realize the difficulty level of, right? You ever do something and not know how hard it was going to be? Like take a hike. I was talking to Matt Bergeson uh, the other day, like he was on a hike with Tom Ward, another OG around here, and he's like, didn't know how hard it was going to be, and they ended up in a kind of an interesting spot, right? But sometimes we don't realize how hard these things can be, and we don't realize what's happened in our hearts. This is why Jesus says this in Luke 12, watch out, be on guard against all kinds of greed, because life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. And what I want to point out to you here is this is that he, this is one of those times where Jesus says for us to really be on guard about something, to watch out for something. He doesn't say, watch out uh, because you might steal, right? Because if you steal something, you know that you've stolen something. He doesn't say, watch out um, if you are going to um, uh, pick, pick another thing on the list. Uh, you just go up for the fifth helping of pulled pork yesterday, right? at a graduation party, right? Because you know, like you know what you're doing. But this one here, the way our hearts can gravitate towards abundance or towards stuff is something that's like a drift, right? And then we can reorder our priorities around that unknowingly. And that's what we're going to keep diving into. I pulled up the uh, Becoming Minimalist website. And that website aggregated data on how much and how we're doing with the stuff that we actually have. And here's just a few of the pieces that pull, pulled out of that. There are 300,000 items in the average American home. The average size of the American home has nearly tripled in the past 20 years. It's getting so out of control that one out of every 10 Americans rents off-site storage. <laughs> the average woman has 30 outfits for every day of the month. I'm really sorry. Uh, in 1930, that figure was nine, and I know I could hear my wife like, 30, that's it? Um, the average American throws away 65 pounds of clothes every year. My wife just did the purge, and it was bad. I mean, we had bags of stuff that went out. I guarantee it was about 65 pounds. It was good, because we're trying to be minimalist, right? We're trying to be simple. Uh, meanwhile, back at the ranch, nearly half of Americans uh, don't save any money. And the Wall Street Journal said that Americans spend $1.2 trillion annually on non-essential goods, like things we don't even need. We get so much stuff over the course of our lifetime that we're going to spend a total of 3,680 hours or 153 days searching for misplaced items. <laughs> Research show that we like, can lose uh, up to nine items every day or almost 200,000 in our lifetime. Phones, keys, sunglasses, and paperwork were at the top of the list. And I'm at a 50-50 right now if my wife knows where her phone is because she loses that thing like a champ. I mean, you, she went from like the living room to the kitchen and it's, where's my phone? I have no idea, right? And then you go into that frenetic panic mode. 
But for all of that, I want to top it off with this. 2021 Pew Research said that the share of U.S. adults, this is actually, I think, kind of cool. I think it's kind of good news for those of you that want to talk to people about Jesus and engage the culture. And uh, again, maybe some of you are here and you're just brand new exploring Jesus. We love that here at the bridge. But I want to tell you that the, sh- um, the share of U.S. adults who bring up their economic status as a source of their meaning, right? Meaning I find my meaning in life because of my economic estate, my stuff. Um, I, and that's why I feel safe and secure. That's why I, you know, just have a good sense of purpose and meaning about my life. That has gone down from uh, 29% to 18% in the last four years. And this was done in 2021. And I bet that's actually gone down even further. Now, the cool thing about that, I think, is that people are even feeling that meaninglessness of finding your identity and stuff. They're losing hope. They're despairing. They're increasing material estate is, 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 is also decreasing their spiritual state, right? Their, their stuff, it might be going up, but in their hearts, they're feeling like this isn't what it's about. And so what I want to talk to you about today is that true happiness, top shelf joy, is not found in your estate, it's found in your state, And if you search for joy in your estate, you're going to be disappointed. But if you search for joy in your state, you will be delighted. And so I want to pray this morning as we dive into this passage and ask God to really etch this message in our hearts from this text. Father, we are so grateful uh, for the privilege of being here. It has been an absolute joy to drive around this town and reminisce and sit with friends uh, on a back porch talking about how Jesus changed their lives listening to their son say, I'm not sure if I'm going to take this job because I believe God might be calling me to to, to shepherd a local church or to be part of a church ministry, to see that you are sovereign and working in this place. It's been such a delight. And so I pray today that you would soften our hearts, that you would draw us to Jesus, that you would really speak truth uh, in our inmost being as we explore uh, this passage together. We love you, and we're super grateful for this time. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Now, you see what I did here, because this is a, that's an OG. I'm a seasoned pastor now. I didn't start the timer until after my introduction. And you're like, that was the introduction? And I'm like, that was the introduction. Don't worry, though. I mean, it's cool. I got you. No, maybe. Okay. I just, I just got back from like a conference a couple weeks ago with a buddy, and the, the, the preacher preached for two and a half hours. And I promise you, you would have thought you were there for like 15 minutes. It was so engaging and enthralling. It was great. I, I don't have that two and a half hour anointing, but um, I'm going for like the 35, 40 minute anointing, but we'll, we'll get there. All right. I want to review and follow the logic of this passage, okay? So James chapter 1, even if you take a peek in there with me, right, you're going to, in verse 2... He he wants us to be really joyful and count it joy when we meet trials of various kinds. And and he defines a trial as a test, right? He he says that we're going to have to endure these things. Trials are are defined as tests which God sends to build us up. And in chapter 1, he also talks about temptations, which are also tests. However, they're not from the Lord, as we look at the rest of the passage, which we won't do today. They're more like traps 
that Satan sends the bait into the water of our heart to hook us and tear us down. And so James also needs you to know in his theme of his letter, right, every true follower of Jesus is going to endure uh, tests, uh, trials, if you will, and temptations. Like we need to be activated and aware about these particular things. And, and he wants to know that the way that we respond to these things are actually um, evidences of whether or not we're genuine followers of Jesus. I need you to know, and, and Jesus is going to need you to know, that not everybody that hangs around church and says they're a follower of Jesus are actually a follower of Jesus. Look what Jesus said, and we won't go through the whole parable, but in, in Luke 8, we call it the parable of the sower or the parable of the soils. Um, Jesus said, the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, so they, they heard the seed, they receive it with joy. They're like, yes, this is it. I want the Jesus thing. But they don't have any root. Why don't they have any root? Well, they believe for a while, and in a time of testing, which is the word kairos there, these kairos-appointed seasons of our life or the, the destined times of our life where we're under this testing, what happens in their time of testing is that they fall away. And as for what fell among the, the thorns, right, so the, that the rock, right, the, the, the word of God landed, and for some people they're like the rock and they just, they, they hear it, but they, they, they fall away during a test. The thorns, they hear it, and they're like, yeah, I'm cool with this. They, they start along their way for a little while, and then they get UFC'd by the cares and riches. It doesn't say that, choked. Come on now. You all know me. You know where we're going here. Uh, they are choked out by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. They don't experience full life development in Jesus. And as for that in good soil, they are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience, right? So the way that we respond to these things are evidences of our authentic faith in Jesus. Now, whether we're living in prosperity or poverty, is, it, it, neither of those are, are inherently wrong. To, be, to have an economic status of being poor or being rich. That is not my topic today. If it was my topic, I would go to the Bible book of Proverbs and we would talk about the righteous rich and the unrighteous rich. And we would talk about the righteous poor and the unrighteous poor. Because there's ways of being in those states that could be sinful. But in and of themselves, to be poor or to be rich are neither, it's, it's a morally neutral category. It's just an economic status that you live in. That's not my topic for today, but what I want you to see is that poverty and prosperity are set in the context of these tests that we endure or potential temptations that could lure us away. This is why the scriptures say in Hebrews 2, we must pay more careful attention, therefore, to what we've heard so that we do not drift away. It's always a drift. It's always a slow pull. Um, here's an example. We call it, call it the Demas syndrome, right? For Demas, in love with the present world, failed the test, if you will, of, of his economic um, 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 estate. He, he, he thought that was more beneficial than his status with Jesus, and he's deserted me and gone to Thessalonica, Paul wrote. And then John the Apostle writes about a group of people where it says, they went out from us, meaning they were hanging around the church community, but they really did not belong to us. For if they belonged to us, they would have endured. They would have remained with us, but their going showed that none of them belonged to us. So 
James is addressing these, these two classes of people, the poor and the prosperous, who've been scattered because of persecution, and he's very aware as an excellent crisis leader that he needs to give them clarity, and he needs to challenge them not to compromise. He needs to challenge them to endure. And so the first thing he does is he challenges the poor, or the, the lowly brother. Of course, we know that applies to the lowly sister too, right? All, all, um, that, that word is representative here. Um, and that, that particular person who is economically deprived, the person who is looked down on by the world, is supposed to boast, is commanded to boast in their spiritual status with Jesus, in their exaltation with Jesus. Now, my father was a lowly brother. He was legit poor. He grew up on the streets of Patterson, New Jersey, running from gangs. He was literally in and out of the foster care system, eating mustard sandwiches for his meals as his alcoholic parents drank his life away. He went to the gospel rescue mission to get a meal, and finally he would you know, say, I need to get out of here. I need to break free from this. He, he, was, he was beaten. He was deprived. He was legit poor. That status, if you will, deeply affected him. It deeply, it, he felt that, right? He felt his economic status. He felt his poverty. And he responded in certain ways to that. And I would argue today he is still deeply impacted by that status, And so this is one of the reasons and maybe the primary reason why James commands this lowly brother to boast because it's much easier and more natural in many ways to live off of the feeling of our economic estate rather than our spiritual state. Like we experience the physicality of poverty or the physicality of prosperity, right? And it's much easier for us to to, to kind of think about our reality in light of our poverty or prosperity. Now, poverty brings with it its own temptation, set of temptations and tests. Perhaps to steal, perhaps to lie, perhaps to be bitter. Life isn't fair. Why why do they get that and I don't? I deserve more. It's not fair. And the list goes on. Whether you have um, a, a poverty mindset or actually are economically Poor And James warns the poor not to give in to those temptations, not to nurse that bitterness, not to, 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 to live into those things, but to manage your state, to boast in what's true of you because of Jesus. You may feel low, but your feet are in high places. You may have debt, but your sin debt has been lifted. You may feel down, but the path of life leads upward for the righteous. You may find it hard to stand any longer, but you are seated with Christ in the heavenly places. You may be homeless, but you will have a mansion over the hilltop. That's what what James is calling the poor to, to be activating that awareness. That's what it means to manage your state. Manage your affections, your feelings, your reality in light of what is true spiritually rather than economically. Are you all tracking? Okay, cool. True joy is not in your stuff, it's in your state. This is the test. Your stuff, or lack thereof, easily becomes a test or a temptation, which can make it difficult for you to focus on what really matters. This is why the prayer of Agur in Proverbs is so wise. Check this out. He says, two things I ask of you. 
Deny them not to me before I die. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me. Why is he praying for that? Why doesn't he want to be poor? And why does he not want to be rich? Why does he just want the, the, to be content with what he has? Lest I be full and deny you and say, who's the Lord? Lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. That's, that's some deep, loaded wisdom. And, and this is kind of the, 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 the activation I want us to have from this passage is around, that's what I mean by managing your state, being aware of the potential that your heart has drifted away from Jesus, that actually you, the constant awareness of Jesus, moment by moment, recognizing our, our reality in our workplaces, in our time off, just knowing what really matters, right? These are things that our economic estate can blind us from. And some of you may be thinking now, like, wow, Brian, this sounds pretty hard. Like, give me one example, like, of a poor person who did this. Jesus, right? Okay, he's perfect, but nevertheless, think about it. Jesus was a poor humble, wandering rabbi, no room in the inn, right? Left the, the riches of heaven, the ultimate highest exalted place, and came down. And he, he did this, right? He actually managed his state, fully God, fully man, in the power of the Spirit, right? He, he did not allow his economic condition hinder his position, right? And his mindset and his affections and his, his obviously, he did it in perfection, but Jesus did that, right? And we're called to be conformed to the image of Jesus. Now, that's the poor. Let the lowly person boast in his or her exaltation. Now to you and I. The rich, now this one's not as fun. You watch. The rich, we're to boast in our humiliation. Now, we're not talking about physical humiliation. For example, if you've, uh, how many of you have picked up the latest sports craze of pickleball? I know y'all were throwing beanie bags last time I was here 10 years ago. You still doing the bag thing where you throw the, what's that called, cornhole? You doing, I know someone in this room probably invented that. I think it was like a Wisconsin beer thing, right? Like, ah, pick up that bag. Anybody doing pickleball? Let me see the, the show of hands, right? Okay. So we're not talking about the humiliation of, of uh, let's say you're playing pickleball with your family, hypothetical story, and uh, your family just absolutely humiliates you because you can't play pickleball to save your life, right? Not that we've ever done that as a family, but, but we're not talking about that kind of humiliation, right? In the same way, exaltation is calling the poor person their physical reality to live within a spiritual reality of their position in Jesus. This humiliation is a spiritual reality. It's the, it, it's the opposite of what we talked about, actually. It's, it's, it's starting to say, the way we view the world based on position and privilege and wealth doesn't matter. Riches are not the basis for our identity. They are not the basis for our security. Um, because it's what we feel and live in and the world celebrates, right? We talk about that all the time and that matters deeply to us, right? Here's my position at work. Here's how much money I make or here's what I have. Whether we talk about it or whether it's internal. But this position of being a rich brother or sister has its temptations and tests. And those are things like, 
being independent, I can do it myself, being self-sufficient, being self-righteous, isolating ourselves because we've created our own little domains where everything is so comfortable, overindulgence, missing out on impact in the kingdom, right? Your richness is a test. It actually is a trial. It's a brutal one. And the way to advance in your full life development in Jesus is to actually learn to boast in your humiliation. You may feel high, but actually you're low. You may have no debt. You may have lots of bread in the bank, but it's not yours. It's the Lord's. God put it there. You didn't put it there. Yes, you faithfully worked, and we celebrate good hard work, right? But how many of us live in the security of our physical savings rather than the reality of our spiritual uh, inheritance. Your wealth is almost always going to cause you to think, for you to think more highly of yourself than another person. Tell me this is not brutal. Tell me that it is not difficult when you have abundance to look down on people that don't. It is brutal. It is difficult. That is the natural gravitational pull when you have stuff. It is not easy to do. It is challenging to do, right? But being boasting in humiliation means that the ground is level at the foot of the cross and you manage your state to think of others more highly than yourself. Every person that you lock eyes with, you think of as more highly than yourself. That's what Paul wrote in Philippians. Now, you may have a mansion in this age, but your home in the age to come might be a tiny home. Straight up, right? Now, if I had more time today, what I would do is I would do a whole parking lot on living for eternity and the judgment seat of Jesus as a follower of Jesus and the rewards. Because there is like a reward system. It is not the basis for our salvation, uh, but it is a demonstration of that we love Jesus, that we live for the things that matter. And, and, and there are many passages that point to the fact that as followers of Jesus, we will be rewarded appropriately in the age to come. And when one person is rewarded more than another person, there won't be any sense of, of uh, missing out or regret or something like that because you'll be made perfect and you'll celebrate that person perfectly, right? There won't be that. But there are those things in the age to come that we're storing up. You might have a mansion here and a tiny home there. You might be living in my 1978 mobile home with little squiggles right? That's okay. You'll love it, and I'll celebrate your little trailer too, (laughs) right? But this is the reality. We can get numb to what really matters, right? You can be comfortable and fit and have a Peloton and go to a masseuse and get pedicures and wear cool clothes, but if you are not enjoying Jesus, getting uncomfortable with Jesus, and from the overflow of your spiritual state, prioritizing and stewarding the stuff that God cares about, whatever, It doesn't matter, does it? So I like the poor part better too. No worry. It's brutal. I want want you to even just be thinking about this over the next week or so. Now, I'm going to let you into my story a little bit. What's been going on with B-dubs? That's my my nickname. What's been going on with B-dubs over the last 10 years? What's this test that you've been in um, and that I'm telling you that you're in? So I I really have. I've been reflecting on this, thinking about this um, a lot. Um, Because when we left here, we had the privilege of launching a college ministry at a church that went well. We probably had two to three hundred college students and young adults coming. It was called Brand New. It was really cool. Um, Focused on Jesus. Same same kind of thing that we did here, but God just did it there. It was really fun. 
That church went through kind of a transition time, all good. Um, And at the time, I finished up my PhD, and God opened a door for us to uh, go into business full-time. So after the the, the college ministry landed, now no sense of leaving in an unhealthy way at the church. I still love that church. We're no longer part of that church, but love that church. Didn't leave like a jaded, burned-out pastor or anything. I still love the ministry. I still feel like my calling is to the local church even though I'm in a season of using business as a platform for ministry, right? So I, I was able to transition from full-time ministry into finishing my PhD, into starting a business, being the number one performer in a global leadership firm, making really good money for about five years doing that, started another business with a business partner, uh, stepped into a role in kind of a little startup company that uh, was a lot of fun to do as well. And then one of my clients uh, picked me up at an executive level after coaching and consulting with them for four to five years. I'm as surprised as you. And I was sitting with uh, Ron yesterday. He's like, man, you've changed. I'm like, I I hope so. I mean, in 10 years, I've hoped I changed a little bit, right? But we should be changing. But I have changed. Like, I've experienced some things differently uh, prior to the the season of my life uh, when I was here. Now, I love my, actually love my job, love my team, love our culture, love our company, but I want to show you an example of my time of testing and my suffering. So here's a picture. Um, Now this, um, I mean, this is one example. So like in a 14-month period about, I'm I'm, I'm guessing here, it's probably off a little bit. We went to like a five-star resort in Costa Rica twice, by the way, People see me on Facebook, they're like, how do you do all that? Like, our company pays for it. I don't pay for it. But five-star resort to Costa Rica twice. Went to Mexico, five-star all-inclusive resorts twice. This is like a 14-month period. Let me go on boasting in the Lord uh, about the thorn in my flesh. Flew Bethany and I first class to Paris and southern France. Um, we, we drove those cars, a Rolls and a convertible Porsche, to, uh, in southern France, to the perfume capital of the world in Grasse, France, made my own scent. I'll be selling it on eBay after this. I'll give you the link now. I don't sell it. Um, I'm seriously, like, that's like dream come true stuff. We drove the cars to a Michelin star restaurant. I, I only knew that that was like a tire before 10 years ago. Like, I had Michelins. I didn't know what a Michelin star restaurant was, right? We, um, it, it was absolutely insane. It's been crazy. Now you're like, oh, Brian, you poor thing. That sounds horrible. Oh, the pain sounds terrible. Tell us more about your suffering for Jesus. Oh, you poor thing. I'm going to be in the prayer corner for you afterwards. Y'all don't have that anymore. You got that cross, which is cool, right? Now, here's the thing. Um, It it has prompted indwelling sin and repentance, these experiences, and and this, this numbing lifestyle it's been brutal, and I, now I'm, I am being serious. Um, it it, is, it is the, has been a big test to surface my heart and to say, like, you can easily see what, what the author of Hebrews was talking about when he says, pay careful attention, because you start drifting away from talking to people about Jesus, about prioritizing your time with Jesus. You you get more stuff, it feels very comfortable. You're like, oh, this is cool. You get a horizontal view of life instead of a vertical view of life. This battle, I I hope at least one person can relate to the battle, right, of this, the the prioritization. It's brutal. 
Now, I want to be positive, and I want to be sanctificationally, sanctification-y about it because I want to call us up to living in light of this. And that's what God's been doing in my life. If you're like, man, what's the main thing God's been doing in your life over the past 10 years? It's this. It's showing me how easy it is when the author of the hymn wrote, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. And we tell that hymn story, and we, we, we know that that particular hymn writer did wander from the faith, right? So, so fighting for this, managing our state in the midst of our economic estate, right? This is the thing that I'm calling us to today. Um, let's go on in the passage and finish this out together, okay? So we, we, we see that clearly we're supposed to do this. Why? Because like a flower of the grass, we are going to pass away, right? This comes right out of the Bible book of Isaiah, chapter 40, verse 8, where it says that the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord will stand forever. So this is kind of behind-the-scenes Old Testament prophecy pointing us to, to nourishing ourselves on the enduring word of God, right, to growing ourselves as followers of Jesus. And, um, and, and that actually, he gives this picture that would have been very familiar about the sun coming and scorching these grass and flowers that would fade away uh, and perish, right? There were actually flowers in Israel that would pop up in February and be gone by May, right? So these, there were three kinds of flowers that did that. And even better, you can think about a desert scape. And sometimes when it rains, it bubbles up life for a few, like literally for the day. By the end of the day, there's all these, you know, flowers and things there. And then the next day, they're gone because the, by the end of the day even, because the sun scorches it down, right? That's what, uh, th- th- that's starting to put into picture the, the sobering work of this passage, right? The sobering work of this passage is remember that. <laughs> remember that this life is a breath. Start to think about while we're over here getting a cotton candy sugar high on the comforts of life, in the midst of our pursuits, we will fade away. We don't know when that will happen. We know that it will happen. And he finishes the passage by saying, like, what makes this worth it? In verse 12, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. So he, he, he wants us to feel the benefit and blessing of endurance, right? People who don't know Jesus, the happiness of their life is primarily dictated by do they have stuff or do they not have stuff? That's the categories, right? That's the gauge of happiness. Do I... Do I um, have a comfortable life? Do I like my life? It's all about that peace. That's really it. For the follower of Jesus, we have a deep transcendent experience of our union with Jesus, right? Our whole mind and soul and body delighting in the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, right? So like, is it worth it? Um, It says, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. Why? For when he has stood the test and passed the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who loved him. Now, please be careful. I'm, I'm not telling you that your salvation is dependent on whether or not you stand the test. Your salvation is dependent on the fact that Jesus stood the test. But a demonstration of your genuine trust in Jesus and that you're a genuine follower of Jesus is that you will endure, that you will actually Um, work through the trials and temptations of this life, and we get to experience that 
um, beautiful, joyful reality, even now in part in this age, that we are blessed, that we'll be happy, that we will be satisfied, that we will truly have experienced what it means to count it all joy. A couple closing things. So Billy Graham um, in Southern Seminary Chapel in 1982, he was 64 years old. He said the greatest surprise in his life was the brevity of life. And he said this. I'm just going to read what he said. If someone would have told me that when I was 20 years old, life was very short and would pass just like that, I wouldn't have believed it. And if I tell you that, you don't believe it either. I cannot get young people to understand how brief life is and how quickly it passes. Right? Everything is like now. It's not Graham, it's Instagram. We have the Today Show, the Tonight Show. You know, everything is like now, quick. Here's your, your headline with this person, that person. Everything is now, now, now. Right? We need to be thinking about living in light of our moments, yes. And we need to be thinking about the brevity of life, that in the midst of our pursuits, we're going to fade away. We don't know when that will be. And we need to be thinking about eternity, not just like now, right? Not just how do I do something so quick right now? So in the uh, practice of church history, which is why I've had this um, hourglass and this candle here, it wasn't random. It's a practice called memento mori. It's a, a Latin phrase that means remember death or remember you must die. And if you were to go into a church, even, for example, in the, the 16th century, the Puritans, uh, after the, the, the kind of the, the radical architecture and iconography and, and, and sort of gloss and glitz of the Roman Catholic Church, you would see a very plain background and you would see a candle and an, and an hourglass. And, and those two items, sometimes you would actually see like a skull. And that, that might seem kind of somber, but the, they were reminders of the brevity of life. And they would keep these items in front of them to remember that they must die, right? Remember that in the midst of your pursuits, you will fade away. The candles burn down, the sand runs through the hourglass. Our time in this world is likewise short, and every day matters. Every day matters. And what ultimately matters is Jesus. I can tell you that even though um, I, I was thinking back to like, when did I feel like I had the least? Like, I've never been poor. Most of you have not been poor. But when did I feel like I had the least? And I was thinking back to that time. We were actually like on food stamps or women, infants, children. They called it in, in South Carolina, WIC, right? Like, we weren't making money at the time. I was actually... Uh, I was going to say we, but I was on the GI Bill. Bethany was working and uh, living in the, in the trailer. But I'll tell you this. It was a sweet time. The sweetest times were the presence of the Lord descending while I was sitting at the, the kitchen table reading uh, from the scriptures and God just ministering to me and teaching me truth and embedding stuff. Like, you can have nothing and have the most beautiful, joyful times with Jesus, right? And can I tell you about my best time so far in business? Um, this is a good friend of mine. His name's Tim. Uh, true story. I know it's going to look like a um, uh, not, uh, what's the word? You're going to think I pulled it off of GQ or something. But this is a good friend of mine. And that was his car. He sold it back to Ferrari. They gave him like $100,000 more than it was worth a year later. So you thought of Ferrari was a bad investment. All you husbands that want to go back and you, that car that you were talking about? Okay. 
So before I took my role, uh, Tim flew me out to, um, to Boston where he lives, and I was just doing my, my leadership stuff with him, coaching, doing some business strategy work, et cetera. And uh, we were at dinner that night, him and his girlfriend, and I was just prompted to talk to him about Jesus and share the gospel with him. And his jaw dropped, and he's like, wow. You know, he had no, um, you know, some light awareness and background. Um, that set him on a journey. He called me just a couple months later. He's like, dude, I'm a follower of Jesus. And I'm like, dude, I saw that coming. That's awesome. <laughs> Fantastic. I love it, right? That, that like... It doesn't, that's what matters, right? And so now Tim's reprioritizing life. He called me a few weeks ago and he said, man, I, I messed up. I made a decision. I know it wasn't what, you know, following Jesus was about. And now I'm, I'm, I'm making that uh, right, you know. Unbelievable. That's what matters, right? That those are the things. It's, it's not to devalue your work. I love my work. I could see the benefit and of bringing the kingdom, right, into the workplace. I love all of that. But I want us to, to memento mori. I want us to remember that every, how do, we, how do we reposition so that every moment is lived, lived in the reality of eternity? That's, that's where my mindset is right now, and that's what I'm working on. So three calls to action I want to give you today before we close. Number one, grade yourself on this test, if you will. I know it's a little risky metaphor, but I just want you to think about, define your point of view about your estate, your stuff. What, what do you think about stuff? Do you have a poverty mindset? Are you actually in poverty? Do you have an abundance mindset in the midst of your poverty? If you're rich, do you know how to boast in your humiliation? Like, just, just like check out how are your behaviors playing out in light of this passage, okay? So take that with you this week. Number two, put a memento mori practice in your life because in the midst of your pursuits, you will pass away. You will fade away, right? It's going to happen to all of us. Uh, we've had tragic losses in our company, very healthy, 40-something-year-old people, all sorts. Of, you, you all have been through a lot. You know what that looks like, right? But put a memento mori practice in your life. For me, it's probably my next tattoo. Sorry if I've offended any of you. Like, I want this in front of me. I want a skull, an hourglass, a candle. I want to remember that that's actually the reality, right? Um, and third, I want you to boast. That word is so cool. It's the word rejoice. It's the word delight in, like boast, whether, whether you need to boast in your exaltation, which all of us do, or boast in your humiliation. Um, learn how to do that. Like this week, pay attention to those things and actually say, okay, I'm not going to go down the road of temptation or testing about this stuff. I'm going to actually learn how to boast and rejoice in the midst of this. Now, ultimately, here's the thing. Because of indwelling sin, because we're not Jesus living this out perfectly, we're not going to get an A++ 100%, right? We're just not. But I will tell you that in 2 Corinthians 8, 9, there is one that passed the test for you. It says this, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. Why? So that through his poverty you might become rich. And in Jesus, you are rich. If you don't know Jesus and your life has been snared by temptations and tests, we plead with you to come to Jesus. And we're really honored that you're with us today. And, and I know the staff team and others uh, around you would be happy to talk with you. So I'm going to invite the band up. Let me pray as they're coming up as we close. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, thank you for your word. Thank you for the power of it, the truth of it the way you've been at work in our lives, God, just molding our hearts and our minds to delight in you, to rejoice in you, to know 
that um, every moment, God, we can be aware of you. We can live in sync with the things that matter uh, from an eternal perspective. So thank you for this local church. Thank you for starting it. Thank you for continuing it and sustaining it. Thank you for the way that you're working through it right now in, in just sanctification and maturity and growth. Bless this local church. Bless this St. Croix Valley. For your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening. The Bridge Bible Church stands to exalt the name of Jesus. We seek to be a community that gives glory to Christ above all things and welcomes all people to join us in worshiping Him. If you don't have a church home, consider visiting ours. We are ordinary people who want to live life with authentic faith. For more information on how to get connected, deepen your faith, and experience what God has for you, please visit our website at thebridgewire.com.